Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Dr. Kelly Flanagan, a returning guest on the show and the author of True Companions, Lovable, and a forthcoming novel titled The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell. Kelly is a clinical psychologist by day and writer by night. You can learn more about Kelly's work in the world at drkellyflanagan.com. In the conversation, Kelly and I discuss the importance of loving yourself, the role of self-acceptance, letting go of control, both and thinking, love and courage, Nietzsche's concept of amor fati, and much more. I really enjoyed the conversation and hope you do as well. Without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Dr. Kelly Flanagan. Well, Kelly, welcome back to In Search of Wisdom. Oh, thanks for having me here. It's great to be here again. I enjoyed our first conversation. Yeah, I did as well. I'm looking forward to this, and I was kind of looking at the the time frame. It's surprising that it's it's been a year since we connected last to discuss your book, True Companions. That's right. How time passes. Time flies, doesn't it? Um, yeah, I. Uh, it's it's a cliche, but it's true. Um, a year ago, True Companions came out. Um, really feels like it was a month ago. Yeah. Well, today I'm excited to chat with you about a obviously a connected topic, but maybe what Thomas Merton calls our true destiny, which is love. And you've written, uh, you know, a few years back, a, a wonderful book on the topic titled "Lovable," which I, I recently listened to again, and is is just great. And I'm curious to ask, as you reflect on your book "Lovable." What do you think has resonated and connected so well with people? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think, so the, the premise of lovable is that we all come into the world with a true self created for us um, and given to us and that it is absolutely worthy of love and belonging. Um, but somewhere in our lives we experience, usually pretty early on, we experience some sort of pain. Um uh, a shameful message that says you're not good enough the way you are. Uh, and so what we do naturally, oftentimes very early in life as young children, is we start to build a second self, a false self or a protective self, an ego, if you will. And it is it is that self from which we end up living sort of most of our lives. So in, in Lovable, I, um, I sort of set out to um, to explore that experience of true self and false self, um, but to do it through the lens of a father, uh, of, of kids, um, because that's what's impacted so much of my experience. Of um, And so I wanted to explore those concepts of true self and false self, but through the lens of a father um, who's had kids, who began to re-experience his own true self by watching my kids inhabit theirs <laughs> before they felt the need <laughs> to protect and cover up and hide themselves from the world and uh and to and to be able to look at that and go i bet i bet that was me once and and i wonder what of 
of that is still inside of me. And so my my daughter and I wound up on the Today Show after writing some letters to my kids that went viral. And uh, I got connected to an agent and she said, hey, you're writing letters to your kids. Um, you know, you should probably write a parenting book. And I said, well, okay, I'll, I'll check with my wife about that, who's the child psychologist, by the way. And I told my wife, yeah, Kathy thinks I should write a parenting book. And, uh, and my wife is like, you have no business writing a parenting book. And she was right. But it got us talking like, okay, so all of these letters uh, and all these emails I'm getting about the letters that I've written to my kids, it made me start to realize that the letters were not saying, oh, I'm going to save this letter for my daughter or give it to my granddaughter. It was from adult people, thousands of them saying, I needed to hear this. I needed to be reminded that I'm worthy, that I matter, that I'm not alone, that I belong, that I have a reason for being here, all of these things. And it started to hit me. We all have a little kid inside of us still waiting on a love letter. Um, and, mm. and so I think one of the reasons lovable has resonated so much is that one of the more, um, one of the more tangible ways to experience our true self, I think, is to reconnect with that younger version of us that is still inside of us, that little kid that is still sort of waiting to be reminded of all of these good things about them. Um, so I look at my kids and I see their true self and I start to realize, huh, I have, I have a true self still buried inside of me somewhere inside of all my ego and protection and false self. Well, I, I love it. And that's a, a great intro into the the chat, which we can hopefully talk about love for yourself, love for others, love for the world. And, and we'll see how far we get into this, but I was kicking around where to, to maybe kick it off. And I, I decided to just jump in the deep end here <laughs> and we'll, we'll, we'll throw maybe a, maybe a challenging question. And, and you may have answered a bit of it there, but maybe we can expound upon it. And, uh, it, comes from Thomas Merton. He wrote in uh, No Man is an Island, which you may have quoted before, but I'll, I'll paraphrase here, here roughly for the audience. If we're to love sincerely and with simplicity, we must overcome the fear of not being loved. Hmm. We must somehow strip ourselves of our greatest illusions about ourselves frankly recognize in how many ways we are unlovable descend into the depths of our being until we can come to the basic reality that is in us and learn to see that we are lovable after all in spite of everything now i i tend to categorize that in a much easier said or written than than done and right. it, it also connects with something that Carl Jung wrote of the most terrifying thing in the world is to accept oneself mm. completely. Mm. And you write a lot about worthiness, shame. I mean, the book is just fantastic. But how do we accept ourselves completely without losing our sense of worth or getting into that? area of experiencing un, an unhealthy sense of, of shame, right. if you will. Right. Yeah, that's it. Um, so there's a startling moment that happens when, and it's sort of the precipitant of many midlife crises, is when you realize that the self that I've been living out of isn't really me. 
you know, for, and, and I think Merton says that we, we sort of take our most illusory self for granted as our only self, when in fact it's a nothing self. It's the self we've sort of created to stay safe and to be protected. And that self does all sorts of terrible things. To, to you know, believing it is unworthy of love, its job is to go out and do things to get love, to get belonging, and it's willing to do a lot of not so great things. Um, you know, uh, my uh, I shared this in a blog post recently. We were, got back to our car one day and we had some damage, and we looked at the security footage. And these three kids are coming up to our car, and the one in the middle walks right up to the front of the car and just kicks the bumper really hard, and they walk away. And we're watching that, and it's me and my wife and my 12-year-old daughter. And uh, my wife goes, why would someone do something like that? And my daughter says, well, because he thinks they'll like him more because he did it. She's 12, right? So she's right in it. Mm -hmm. She's still sort of connected to her true self, already building her false self. She's like, I know how this works. He's searching for belonging, right? And our false self, our ego, does so many really crummy things to try to belong and to fit in uh, and to be loved. And here's the trick, though. We had to build that false self because we were ashamed. So if we are now ashamed of the false self, we're actually giving ourselves more reason for a false self. So the really game-changing moment happens when we experience our false self as exactly that, our orchestrated ways to, to find love and belonging in the world that has done a lot of damage to ourselves and other people and left us more lonely than ever, is to encounter that self actually with compassion and grace and understanding that I was once a little kid that was completely vulnerable in the world. I was experiencing pain and enduring shame. And I, I reached for the closest thing I could find, which was a different new self. Mm. And to be able to experience that ego with compassion rather than judgment, suddenly the shame goes away and now we need the ego less. And we're more free to return to that true self. I hope that isn't uh, too, too much of a twisting explanation. <laughs> No, I th I think that is really helpful. And I'm curious to ask as a clinical psychologist, someone that is is seeing people I imagine on a on a daily basis, there's a thing that comes up of a burnout of, you know, in in the workplace and things like that. Is there any connection possibly with living in that false self mm. it sometimes it, at least it connects with me of of maybe being something other than you truly are having an exhaustion to it you know it might not surprise you that and given your question it's very intuitive that a lot of the online uh, coaching that i do is actually with um, entrepreneurs because they read lovable mm. and they go i'm burning out like i'm I'm dying inside of this life I've created, and I, I want to, I want a fuller, richer, more meaningful life. Um, and I do think that that is specifically related to the false self that we create. Um, and 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 the idea that the false self, at its at its best, has confidence in what it does, whereas the true self has confidence in who it is. Right, mm. um, which is divine and lovable. Um, and so the false self, in order to maintain its confidence, has to keep doing more and more and more and more. Um, 
whereas the true self gets to rest into the the easy confidence of trusting who it is. Um, and so, so absolutely, burnout is the natural conclusion to a really successful false self. Like there's there's a very mm-hmm. there aren't too many ways around burnout because uh, the the ego or the false self is always in the project of proving itself worthy by doing one more thing. Um, and so, actually, this morning with the the client I was working with. Uh, her assignment for the week, this might sound a little nuts, but her assignment for the week is to invite her younger self, her true self, uh, to live her week with her. And in every moment, ask her younger self, is this bringing you joy? Uh, or is this something we're doing because we think we have to? Um, and so mm-hmm. that's going to be a step in, in exiting that burnout cycle for her is actually reconnecting with her true self and trying to understand what do I really want to do versus what do I do because I think I have to to be worthy. You're obviously familiar with Richard Rohr. I, I think you've quoted him a, a few times in some of your books. And something he, it seems like to me, really stresses over and over is this both and thinking, mm-hmm. which yep. came up for me as you were describing you know, this, this idea from the Merton quote. Could you connect the dots there? How do you see this, the the ability to, to see those both poles coming in? Hmm. Yeah, you know, so there's, the temptation is toward rejection one way or another, right? So early on in our lives, we feel rejected. And so we start to participate in the rejection and we start to reject our true self and say, it's not good enough. I need to build a false self. Then at some point in our life, our eyes open up to the fact that we've built a false self that has done a bunch of sort of unproductive things <laughs> at best in life. And now our temptation is to reject that version of us. <laughs> and so either way, we're stuck in rejecting an important part of ourselves. Um, and so the hope isn't to um, destroy the false self and may have only the true self remaining, it's to end the cycle of rejection of both and to say, wow, I have this self that I've created and it's got habits and ways of reacting sometimes that I'm not in control of. Um, And I also have this younger version of me, this true self that I've sort of pushed into exile for much of my life. It's been living alone inside of me and I'm done rejecting both of them. My life is going to be about learning how to hold and be aware of both parts of me so that they can sort of coexist together and, and, and serve, the, serve the whole um, well. Mm. So it's ending that cycle of rejection. So it is a both and. Mm. I, I love it. And I have a question around, you begin one of the chapters in Lovable with why the secret to being worthy is doing nothing. And I have, I would love for you to elaborate on that, but also I have a question on what might be the most effective way to think about self-improvement? Hmm. So good question. I have like a, I have a reaction to the, the word self-improvement um, because <laughs> it's almost always got built in self-rejection. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And there's this sort of almost like an addictive cycle that happens here, which is I need to improve myself because I'm not acceptable the way that I am. Um, so I like to, as much as possible, say that, you know, 
any any really helpful self improvement is mostly self acceptance, um, and and there are incredible doors that are unlocked within us when we can do that. Um, versus again continuing to reject and saying I'll I'll be okay once I change this or once I do this. Um, and I do think I do think doing nothing is a powerful expression of worthiness and of self-acceptance. Um, so one of the powerful things about a, a relatively common practice these days would be maybe to start your day with 10 minutes of mindful breathing, right? And to me personally, I'll just say, one of the powerful effects of that is that I'm basically stating with the first 10 minutes of my day that I'm just as valuable as somebody who's just simply being and breathing as I am somebody who's out there doing and accomplishing and producing, right? And so if I have a day where it's really hard for me to just slow down for just 10 minutes and breathe, I know my shame's pretty active because it's telling me, no, 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 that that's not acceptable. That's not valuable. You're no good if you just sit and breathe. And so you need to get out and do something. And so the practice of doing nothing is actually an incredible form of expression of worthiness. One of the tricks that you'll often, or the catches that you'll often find in self-improvement is, and, and, and again, this is something I have to work through with everybody that I coach, is, okay, tell me what to do to feel worthy, right? And in a way, you're participating in the same energy of self-rejection, in order to feel worthy so you can never get there. And and it's always a challenge to, for, for an individual to hear, well, actually, the way to worthiness is to begin to release a lot of the things you're doing and not add anything else new in. Like that's a powerful expression of, self, of worthiness. And, um, and so, and what it does is it introduces you to when, when some of those things go away and you're now just being and doing nothing, you end up encountering a lot of the pain that sent you into the... Uh, the ego project in the first place and it's pain that has to be felt and worked through and released. So um, that's a lot why a lot of people don't do it. They just keep doing. <laughs> it, it's so fascinating. It, it's such um, not necessarily new ideas. As you described that, it reminds me of, of this Lao Tzu quote of knowledge is adding every things every day. Wisdom is removing things every day, mm. but can tend to be very, challenging i think of even the even the 10 minute uh sit of Mm -hmm. mindfulness breathing there can be a tendency when it comes to self-improvement it seems like we have this idea of growing or climbing a mountain or there you know we're going somewhere we're improving in some way we do the 10 minute sit we check a box on Mm -hmm. some sort of to-do list how do you you know, what comes to mind to help people to maybe transition away from that? Yeah. The, the 10, minutes, uh, 10 minutes of mindful breathing is a powerful tool for transformation um, when we're approaching it with the energy that it was intended to be done with. Um, but unfortunately, um, it's, you know, it started as an Eastern practice. Um, and, and sort of what we do in the West is we sort of take practices like that and say, so how can it get me where I want to go? Right. And so you'll hear people say things like, oh, I, I can't meditate. I'm terrible at it. Um, 
And the only way to be terrible at meditating is to not do it. <laughs> um, because, but, but the idea comes from, well, meditation is supposed to make you feel peaceful or it's most supposed to make you feel happy or calm. But originally the purpose of meditation was to help you feel whatever you're feeling, um, to, to encounter your experience with awareness and actually to not do anything to it, to actually learn how to, to be human. Um, and so what happens is we sit down to do our 10 minute sit or 10 minutes of mindful breathing. And at first it's probably boring or it's frustrating where we start to feel some things we don't necessarily want to feel, some sadness about something, and we go, oh, this isn't making me calm or happier, so I, it's, I'm, it's not working. I'm not, I'm not doing it right. When really the, the goal is just to, to, to develop the capacity to abide with the full range of human experience, including frustration and boredom and, and sadness. Um, again, to not reject the parts of you that are frustrated and bored and sad, but to sort of welcome them into that 10 minutes um, and so it, uh, we, I think in a lot of ways, when we think of it as something we just do because doing it somehow makes your life better, or it's something we do because we'll get a quick re you know, reward from it. We've sort of turned it into something. It's not, I was doing this great, uh, mountain meditation, uh, last year. I did it for quite a while. Um, <clears throat> I don't know why I stopped to be honest with you, <laughs> but, uh, it, mm -hmm. uh, a mountain meditation, generally it's a pretty common mindfulness meditation. It involves meditating upon the vision of a mountain and mountain, a mountain in the sense that a mountain is the steady presence in the middle of everything that swirls around it. You know, the weather and the seasons and the day and night coming and going and all of that. The mountain is a sort of steady presence. And then in the middle of the meditation, you, you bring that image of the mountain into the center of you. And it's intended to help you connect with that steady center, that, that center of experiencing that is the same regardless of all of the emotions and feelings and thoughts and everything that are swirling around us. Um, so anyways, I'm starting this mountain meditation and, um, and it's the first time I've ever done it and it's led by someone I've never listened to before. And he did something that just totally caught me off guard. He, he did the typical like come to mindfulness, breathe, scan your body for discomfort. And then you expect him to do the typical, uh, okay, now breathe into that area and let the discomfort go, right? And relax. And instead, he said something that I'll never forget. He said, and when you find that place of discomfort in your body, let it be. We are so often in the habit of trying to change the things that we find. And, mm -hmm. and to me, that is a profound spiritual teaching, right? That we, we find discomfort and we say, that's bad and it needs to go, right? But what a spiritual practice to not try to change the things that we find, but to be present to them and to learn what we can from them by being present to them. Um, I think that that one, so that to me is, is, is mindfulness at its, at its essence, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I appreciate you sharing that. I think that's really helpful. I have a question. Some of these words of, of shame, worthiness, belonging, things like that, that come up. It seems like to me, and I, I could be totally wrong, but some of these are like Eastern traditions or even Western philosophy kind of just talk about delusion. We're not necessarily seeing clearly, you know, it's this uh, delusion of separation mm. and, and things like that. Um, you know, could these, those three just be categorized or 
you know, lumped in. We're, we're just not necessarily seeing ourselves clearly. We're not seeing our, our connection with others clearly. We're not seeing our, our, our sense of worth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Boy, and I think when you, I think you're right at the center of there with, you're right at the center of, uh, what does it mean to love the world? Um, and that there's a time early in our lives um, where we don't have a sense of separation from the world. Um, and we gradually begin to develop that. And then it goes into overdrive when we build that ego that protects us um, from the world. And the ego specifically is designed to say, you're dangerous and I need to be protected from you. Um, or you are going to be withholding of love and belonging and I need to earn it from you. And it is all about you versus me. Um, and some of the most powerful spiritual experiences are just moments where that sense of, of ego just dissipates. And, and when, you, when you speak to people who've had an experience like that, they describe a powerful sense of, I'm, I'm, in, I'm connected to everyone. To, that their well-being is dependent is dependent upon my well-being. Um, that here's a big one. I'm I'm totally worthy, and so is everyone else. That's the big one. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm I'm worthy of love and belonging, and so is everybody else. Even the people that I was angry at ten minutes ago, they're completely worthy of love and belonging. They're caught in their own matrix of protection and hiding and ego, but underneath all that, completely worthy of love and belonging. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's, I think that's an important piece of it that, um, we, we are seeking, um, and trying to grow into our capacity to recognize that we're not really separate. We just, uh, we've built up mm-hmm. some illusions. And was it Thich Nhat Hanh that said, um, the illusion of separateness is what we're all trying to overcome. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. It's such a beautiful thing. I, I think of... Pope Francis, who going around, you know, visiting, visiting various prisons around the world and stating to them that I could be right where you are and you could be right where I am. This idea of coming to a realization that you're not better than a single person on the planet or worse than a single person. Um, such a such a beautiful thing to the ego that just sounds insane and um it sounds it sounds ridiculous and unfair and unjust because look at all the things that i've done to make myself who i am um but to the true self yeah to the soul it's self-evident um and so Mm. the more we're reconnected with our soul or our true self the more that becomes clear um and it's actually it's sort of maybe the definition of freedom that's that's a really good point. I, I want to tie into something that connects with something you said earlier, some wisdom that came from your daughter around this individual that um, you know did some damage to a vehicle, and it's this idea of forgiveness. But maybe it's an I don't know. I tend to think it's, it's some sort of understanding of how the world works. She, she, you know, her response was a bit of just understanding of why this individual probably did that. I, I think back to people of whether it be Thomas Aquinas or Socrates talking about 
you know, the difference, you know, why an individual might commit vice or do evil. It, it's simply a, a lack of wisdom. People are doing things that either rightly or wrongly they think to be correct or, or, or beneficial at, at the time. Yeah, you know, maybe again, we could sort of sort of wade into that at the level of parenting. Like one of the things that I talk with parents about a lot is the idea that the hardest thing to do as a parent is to maintain both your empathy for your kids and your boundaries. Um, because mm -hmm. it tends to be the case that when we're, when we're empathic, we're so aware of why a kid would do something, right? And what it would feel like to get a consequence that it's really hard to sort of hold our boundaries. And then sometimes when we're holding our boundaries, we're mostly just frustrated and angry. And we're not really thinking about what it's like to be on that side of it. Um, and so to me, it like requires an awful lot of, um, an awful lot of attention to be able to say, I want to hold empathy and boundaries at the same time. So for instance, with this, with this kid who kicked the car, she was offering the empathy, right? Uh, oh, I can understand. He's just trying to fit in, right? And yet you can't kick cars. There needs to be boundaries. Um, and so if we can hold our boundaries with empathy with people, to me, that's my, there's another definition of love, to hold boundaries with empathy um, or to have empathy and still have boundaries. Um, but it tends to be like when you look at the political spectrum, you tend to see um, more conservative ideologies are all about boundaries without any of the empathy. Mm and more progressive ideologies are all about empathy without any of the boundaries. And we need both so badly. Why are we fighting? <laughs> let's, let's, <laughs> let's combine those two and get really healthy and, and really love the world well. So, um, so I think those two are important. Yeah. More both and thinking or everything belongs. Um, you bring up parenting and whether it's parenting or really any sort of relationship, some of these wise thinkers that we've already talked about, Merton, I think of Anthony DeMello as well, mm. talk about love without control, allowing people to be perfectly themselves, maybe prodigal son type of parable. How do you, you know, think about this love for others and loosening control, if you will? It's a great question. So, I mean, I think first of all, because it, it can create a lot of anxiety right off the bat to talk about not, not being in control, right? And so I think it's Definitely. important to talk about the difference between control and influence. Like we can still powerfully influence people without trying to have power over them. Um, I'll personally say that for me, the most dramatic change in my parenting happened when my son, my oldest, was about five or six, and I came across the concept that love and control are opposites. Um, so if I was trying to control him, I wasn't loving him, and yet I'm a parent. I have responsibility <laughs> to guide, shape, protect, and all these things. So how do I have influence without resorting to sort of um, mindless authoritarian control? Is really, the, to me, one of the great challenges of being a parent and of being a human being. Um, so what's interesting is that um, you hear love is the opposite of fear. You also hear love is the opposite of control. And both fear and control are, again, I hope I don't sound like a broken record, but they're both elements of ego. Um, they're the reason we needed to build ego. 
they're the, they're what the ego does. It tries to control and manipulate and keep itself safe and get other people to do what it wants it to do and, and all of these things. So in a lot of ways, what we're saying is that love is the absence of protection, really. Love is the absence of um, the need to control and stay safe. Love is sort of the willingness to choose vulnerability, um, to the willingness to say, I'm going to not protect myself, aware that the world can be sometimes dangerous and harsh and unfair, and I'm still going to show up with my true self anyways and not protect. Um, so I think that's where that's where we start to see people live in a way that doesn't, have, doesn't involve fear, doesn't involve control, but it involves an awful lot of vulnerability um, and mm. the possibility of getting hurt um, and I think that's what love leaves open is the possibility of getting hurt. It, I, I tend to think of, um, I, I'm a fan of stoic philosophy and stuff like that. And, uh, there's this dichotomy. By the way, can I put in a plug? Of, can I put in a plug for you? You're my single sure. favorite Instagram feed. I, oh, every yeah. time, oh, you, love it. every time you post a quote from one of the Stoics or, you know, one of the contemplatives, <laughs> I just enjoy it every time. So if you have, if you haven't checked out, uh, your Instagram <laughs> feed, go for it. Oh, appreciate that. Um, but this, this idea to me, and maybe not everyone sees it this way, but I, I see a direct connection to love with this dichotomy of control of uh, the philosopher Epictetus said the chief task, separate items that are within your control and, and what's outside of your control. And then as you mentioned, and some people um, maybe talk about a trichotomy of control, you know, there's maybe some stuff in the middle that you have influence over. Um, but even the idea of repeatedly thinking like that and, and maybe even getting it down on paper seems to be such a, a helpful idea because we have uh, much less control than we often realize right on. whether <laughs> yeah it's uh, so such a difficult thing it's probably my favorite thing to talk about right now um i i'll try to make this quick but i um i was um leading a couples retreat with another co-facilitator and she had the couple sit down and do this really interesting exercise knees touching facing each other and she said okay on the count of three do what i tell you one two three Close your hearts to each other. Get safe. Don't let the other person in. Don't be vulnerable. You know. All right, now open your hearts to each other. And she went through this several times. Now close your hearts to each other. Now open your hearts to each other. And, uh, and then we came into a circle to, to process. And uh, she said, what was it like when you closed your hearts? And everyone said, well, I got real tight in my chest and my shoulders. I gritted my teeth. I, you know, I could think of all the things that they've done wrong to hurt me. Well, what was it like when you opened your heart? I could just feel like a warm sensation flood through my body. I relaxed. I breathed deeply. And she said, okay, here's the point of the exercise. It's not exactly what it felt like when it happened. It's that you had a choice. That in any moment, mm. you can open your hearts to each other or you can close your hearts to each other. And we tell ourselves, well, if you're this way, I'll open my heart to you. And if you're this way, I'll close my heart to you. But the reality is it's your choice in the moment. And the closing mm. of the heart is is the calling up of the ego to say, protect me, right? So last year, 2021, my New Year's resolution was I'm going to catch my heart closing in as many situations as possible and try to open it back up. I'm going to catch my ego kicking in to protect me, try to let it go. Um, and I, I, you can see me, we're here on video here. I, I use like a 
the motion of hands clenching over my chest because that's what it feels like for me. It just feels like my chest closes like a couple of doors slamming together. Um, and so I would notice that sensation, not even know why I was having it sometimes, and, and try to open back up. What that practice evolved into over the course of the year was I became aware that my ego was always either resisting an experience or attaching to an experience, not wanting to feel mm -hmm. or experience something or insisting on it feeling <laughs> or experiencing something else. Mm -hmm. And so what I would do is I would hold one hand out in front of me like a stop sign. And I'd hold the other when my heart would start to close. And the other hand out in front of me like a clenched fist, right? Resist and hold on to. And I'd ask myself, what is my ego resisting in this moment? Or what is it holding on to? And then I'd open my arms wide and say, what if I just allow this experience to flow through me? What if I just let myself experience? And the amazing thing is that I was a more influential and powerful person <laughs> as a result of being able to experience something fully and settle on a wiser way to respond to it than when I wanted to have power and control by saying, no, you can't do that, or it has to be this way, right? So there's an entirely different mm -hmm. level of power that comes from not letting our ego jump into that moment and instead allowing our true self to experience it and then act from that. That is so well said, Kelly. It it makes me think of, of this idea, which we've talked about, of, of vulnerability. Um, and and C.S. Lewis famously talks about, you know, love is, is being vulnerable, which might connect with some and not connect with others. But I, I think you could also call it embodying the virtue of, of courage because there's some fear as, as you opened up, you know, with your arms exposing, there's some, there's some fear. You could think of it as, as being courageous. Absolutely. And I think, I think probably the person, our, our contemporary that has done the best job of talking about that is probably Brene Brown, who talks about the power of vulnerability and the importance of courage and being vulnerable. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe the only difference in between courage and fear is that um, you know fear is fear is vulnerability without the willingness to be brave and stay open. Um, fear is is more just allowing ourselves to shut down and close and protect. Um, but yeah, it, it takes a tremendous amount of courage to stay vulnerable and open when everything in you is telling you to close. And the more the more difficult it is for us to to stay open in a moment like that the more we know the experience that caused us to feel unsafe is approaching sort of the level of trauma, to be honest with you. Like I might define trauma as an experience that is so painful that we are unable to open up to it again in life um, or unable to or unwilling mm -hmm. to experience it again. Um, and sometimes rightly so. Um, and so, yeah, an enormous amount of courage required to stay vulnerable in even the most benign situations, let alone situations that are truly threatening and dangerous um and so and that's where you start to get back into questions of empathy mm -hmm. versus boundaries and when to set boundaries but uh courage is yeah courage is essential in this process our, well our time has flown by uh again yeah. love chatting with you kelly let me My ask question. one one quick question and uh and then we'll we'll wrap up here but around loving the world there's this idea from nietzsche that I want to read, which at first glance is may may sound harsh, but I want to get your brief thoughts if I could. And he calls 
kind of true greatness or this uh, amor fati, love of fate, that one wants nothing to be different, not forward, not backward, not merely to bear what is necessary, but to love it. You might call it an unwavering gratitude for life. Again, it maybe seems harsh, but it does feel like there's a bit of a wise perspective in there when it comes to loving the world. Yeah, there absolutely is. I mean, I think, yeah, he's he's actually, he's holding out that stop sign on that fist, right? And saying, what are we doing to say this moment has to be different and to resist what's happening in this moment? And he's saying that love is fully embracing and accepting this moment. I think that's how I'm hearing it today. Um, and uh, I think that's a wonderful definition of love. Wow. To fully show up to open-heartedly and to embrace this moment without rejection of any part of it. I think uh, I'd love to see that world. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has been great. How can people connect with you and and learn more about what you're up to, Kelly? Oh, thanks for asking. Uh, So my website is drkellyflanagan.com. It's drkellyflanagan.com. I have a the, a five-part lovable mini course available there for free right now. And if you, if you subscribe to it, you'll get my newsletters once a month. Um, let's see, I'm hosting Companion Camp 2022 out in Park City, Utah in October. You can go to the website and find out more about that. Um, I am publishing my first novel in October. Um, I it's saw a, that. It's a book called- available for pre-order. Yeah, the page just went live on my website today. Uh, it is... Um, it's, it's a book called The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell, um, and I am super excited uh, about the, the power of storytelling to sort of communicate a lot of the things we've been talking about today. Uh, I just had a blast writing it. When I asked my younger self what he's always wanted to do, it was write fiction, <laughs> and so I did it, and it's been amazing. So there's a bunch of different ways there to connect with what I'm doing, and uh, I'll, I'm just grateful for anyone who, who swings by. Well, I love it. Well, Kelly Flanagan, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom again. Um, Really appreciate it. Thank you. It was great to be here. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.